We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. It takes time to build a program. I knew I would do it. I had a lot of confidence. I knew it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. I just didn't know when that win would. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers, the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Here's your host, John Little. I'm late for a very important date with you. Welcome in to the Her Hoop Stats podcast. John Little here with you for another week. Yes, I'm sorry we're releasing a little bit late this week, but uh, definitely wanted to get this one into you before the week is up and before a big two-step Friday and Sunday games around women's college basketball. Great to have you here. Yes, Adia Barnes is our guest. She'll be coming up in a second, the head coach of the Red Hot Arizona women's basketball team before they go to Oregon and Oregon State this weekend. Good to have you here. And just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and make sure to review it as well. Every time you do, you help other people find the podcast. It's coming up higher and higher on those searches when you search WNBA. When you search women's basketball, it's coming up. The Her Hoop Stats podcast, which is unreal to me, considering that this little thing wasn't even a thing, you know, less than a year ago until late in the spring. So I'm really glad that you found us. Thanks for sticking here. Um, We've got Adia Barnes coming up in a second. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about my travels here recently. Uh, Went down to San Antonio a couple Saturdays ago, watched the UTSA women's basketball team host Rice, a little Conference USA action. 
did it with my man Ladaren McLean on ESPN Plus. In fact, you can still find that broadcast if you search like UTSA Rice. Uh, you can find that one and uh, tune us in, see how it all went down. Ended up being a lot closer game than it probably looked on paper. Nancy Mulkey was out for Rice in that game. Rice, of course, winning Conference USA last year, both the regular season, the postseason title, going to the NCAA tournament. Rice has been on uh, an incredible role the last two years, but they were without Nancy Mulkey, their big six foot nine player in the middle. And so they, they have plenty of capable players, including the player of the year in Conference USA last year and the preseason Conference USA player of the year this year in Erica Gumake. Yes, the littlest Gumake. And oh my gosh, is she fun to watch? And it's, I'm not breaking any news. If anybody saw her play at Pepperdine or anybody saw her play at Rice the last couple of years, you know it. Um, I've seen her play the last three years now, and just her game is so solid and so sound all the way around. She's got this um, unbelievably strong body. I mean, just pound for pound. You cannot move her. She's only five foot nine. And certainly if she was 6'3 or 6'4 like her sisters, she would have a huge WNBA upside. And, you know, she... Maybe she is at Rice because, you know, she basically went to Rice because she is big into education. She wants to be a doctor. Um, I'm sure she could do that at Stanford as well or or somewhere like that. But, you know, that, that doesn't really matter. The point is, she is just an absolute monster. And she doesn't even have to look to score. In fact, she doesn't even really look to score a lot. She kind of scores when she needs to or when she's the best option. She's just... One of those unreal, fundamental basketball players that it seems almost always is doing the right thing. So we get through the first two quarters, and it's a closer game than probably a lot of people thought on paper, mainly because Mulkey is out, and UTSA has some very scrappy guards, little kid named Michaela Woods, who is going to be great. She's a freshman right now, listed at 5'6". She ain't 5'6", but it doesn't matter. She attacks the bucket with reckless abandon. I think you're going to be hearing her as a top scorer in the NCAA over the next couple of years. Um, but it, Woods was keeping them in it and uh, several things, including the turnover bug, were keeping UTSA around. And then Erica Agumake just decides to take over. She scores just in the third quarter. 19 points just in the third quarter. She goes eight for eight from the field just in the third quarter and completely turns the game around from a game that was somewhat in doubt to a game that's not really in doubt heading into the fourth quarter. And that is the greatness of the youngest Agumake. Uh, I want to get Erica on the show sometime. I've been I've been trying a little bit here and there to test those waters because uh, just want to know what makes her tick because uh, you know I want to know what makes uh, everybody named Agumake tick because uh, there's something special in those bloodlines for sure um, but she is just as special in her own way and a really fun player to watch I hope you get to watch Erica Agumake play uh, sometime down the line if you've never seen her well, coming up on the show, Dia Barnes, the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats. So uh, Arizona poking around for a head coach a few years ago, and they decide to go with somebody they know very well. 
one of the best players in the history of the program in Adia Barnes. And man, has she turned it around fast. Here on this conversation, we'll talk about how fast she's turned it around, how much that even surprises her, how fast this is going. Uh, Some of the keys this weekend as they go to Oregon and to Oregon State and how her team is approaching this back half of the season as they try to snap a long NCAA tournament drought. So... It's time to talk to Adia Barnes. I love what you guys do. It's my pleasure to be on here. Oh, my gosh. Well, th- thanks so much for the compliment. And uh, we love what you guys have going on this year, by the way. So the uh, the feeling is mutual. There's no doubt about that. And uh, you guys are on a roll right now. I wanted to get uh, your reaction to the top 16 teams or seeds at this point in the season uh, being released right now. Um, you guys were at number 13, so you're in that you know fourth tier, that uh, that four-seed tier. How do you feel about that? Is it about right? Are you hoping for more, or were you hoping for more? What do you think about that? No, I think it's um, where we're at and what we're doing. I think it's you know realistic. I think that it's not something to just be complacent about just because there's so much more basketball. And this, unfortunately the season isn't ending today. <laughs> if it was, that'd be a good situation to be in, but it's not. So we just try to narrow our focus and take one game at a time and um, just take care of business. Cause our ultimate goal is to go to the tournament. So we know we're setting ourselves up in a situation to be successful, but we got to win some more games. Well, you're in a good position right now, of course, to go to the tournament. Uh, but anytime a team is coming off several years where they have not been at the NCAA tournament, and it's uh, it's been a while, uh, of course, uh, and you guys had the great WNIT success last year, is there just that, that edge about the team that they feel like they've got something to prove each and every night? Yeah, I think that... You know, it's different, like, chasing and being chased. Um, You know, this is uncharted territory for a lot of our players. Um, Just because our program has been down, like you said, for so long. But I think now we're just, after the momentum we had last year from winning the NIT, it kind of spearheaded this season. So we walked into the season with the bar raised, with expectations higher, and feeling really good about what we're doing. So... Um, I think what solidified this year at the start was the win at Texas. It was a great, it was a big win for us, played pretty well. And then we just continued to get better than ASU and the UCLA win. So we've had some signature wins that I think have just gave us a lot of confidence. And, you know, for us playing in the number one conference in the country, um, you know, we get challenged every single night, every single night we play. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we have good preparation that will help us later on in the tournament. Well, and no doubt about that. I, I mean, you just can't take a night off. How do you approach this weekend's two-step at Oregon, at Oregon State? I, I mean, this is really tough stuff when you're playing uh, two top five teams uh, back-to-back like this. Um, is it is it tough uh, to not put too much pressure on your team, especially uh, considering that they got you guys at home. You feel like, oh, we got to split on the road. We got to get this done. Or how do you approach this weekend? Um, we just take one game at a time. I think that for, I was telling our team, there's no pressure. We're not supposed to go to Oregon and, and beat them. I mean, they've, they're very, they're undefeated at home. They play really well at home. So we have no pressure. We can just go in there and play. Um, so our focus is Oregon, trying to find a way to beat Oregon. But we know it's going to be hard. But I think that we feel like 
on any given night, we can beat anybody. So we just have to come out there and hit shots and, and play the defense we know we're capable of playing. We felt at the home game against Oregon, we didn't play well. And so we know we can play better. And we also recognize that they're playing better. But I think for us, when you can take care of home, win your games at home, win all the games you're supposed to, and if you can go split on the road, you're sitting in a really good situation. So there's no pressure for us going to Oregon. I've seen so much um, about trying to guard Oregon's pick and roll game when you've got uh, when you got Sabrina there and you've got Ruthie and you know they're going. <laughs> I, it just seems so impossible to guard right there and then then shooters that Sabrina can kick to and things like that. Going into that matchup, what are the one or two key things uh, when you're trying to guard uh, the pick and roll there between the between the wings and, and try to limit those those opportunities and options for UNESCO? What are the things that, that you key on? Well, we have to really get obvious down pick and roll defense. So by changing things, I don't think you can play one particular way the whole game. They're just too good. Um, and, you know, you just have to make them work. We know we're not going to shut down their pick and roll. We know they get in the different ways, handoffs, you know, quick screens, step-up screens, all, a lot of different things. So we have to be on point. If we don't defend that well, we won't win the game. And I think the other thing for us is, defending the post better in the past we have not ruthie has killed us pretty much every game in the past so we've got to find a way to address ruthie um and make her work no we're not going to shut her down she's all american but we have to make her work for every shot and you know i felt like the first game we played them she caught us a lot of up and unders and just really you know easy shots that we weren't disciplined in our defense so we have to be better at that and then you know in transition we got to be able to find shooters and no personnel in transition it was a big week um, uh, for Ari when you look at some of the honors that she was able to get on Monday, whether it be a, a National Player of the Week honor or things are starting to get pared down as far as uh, some of these uh, the top awards like the Wooden Award and things like that. And, of course, she's still on the list at, at this time of the year. What have you seen in her this year? Obviously, she was just fantastic last year. Her points are down just slightly this season what would you say that she's doing better this year than than she did last year where where is she taking her game to another level um the first area she's taking her game to another level in is um leadership on and off the court she's more of a vocal leader she's organizing our team better she has a good pulse of the team as to when to when to push it when to kind of slow down she didn't have that last year um she's doing a better job of understanding what to call when uh, you know, who to set up when they're hot, what to run in, in particular situations. Um, and, you know, what I'm really proud of her lately, she's been really um, taking care of the basketball, which I think is a very valuable stat. I think assist to turnover ratio for a point guard is extremely valuable. And she's done a good job of growing in that area. So her decision making is better. And I think overall, you know, she's so unselfish. She, you know, she's a pro- pro- prolific scorer, but that's not just all she wants to do. She wants to when she doesn't care how she does whatever it takes the nights that she's been off offensively she goes and gets 12 rebounds six steals so she's just maturing as a player and i've i'm fortunate i've been able to be a part of that well absolutely and when you look at her game and uh, trying to stay away from the turnover bug where do a lot of her turnovers come in your mind so when i talk to we have a lot of conversations about this because I've, I've played with really some of the best point guards in the world you know, Sue Bird's one of my teammate for many years. Um, what she gets in trouble with, Aries Small, so she does a great job of drawing and getting in the paint with 
five people around her. So if you look at films, sometimes there's literally five players in the paint guarding her and, you know, leaving our shooters open. So sometimes she gets too deep and then she can't see where to pass the ball. And so I think she's learning how to jump stop before and pass the ball on balance, not jumping out of bounds, like jump stopping and passing on balance. So she's gotten better at that. And I think the other area she's gotten better in is reading where the mismatches are. So let's say she's using a pick and roll on the right side of the court and all the defense is set. Well, snaking, getting to the left side where it's a two-on-one on the other side. I think understanding where to drive when has been a part of her game that's really elevated. And um, But I'd say the other thing, jump stopping, under control. And then the third thing is knowing personnel. So there are some – it's hard to pass to a 6-6 player running down the court in the key. They're probably not going to catch a really hard pass. But then maybe a more versatile, experienced player that's a you know a, a more versatile force, she can catch those passes. So I think understanding, you know, give it to the big girl up high, give it to the versatile guard, you can give her any kind of bounce pass. So understanding personnel and putting her teammates in good situations has been an area she's really grown in this year. I love it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, that that detailed breakdown. We'll certainly be watching for that in these big games this week. Yeah. I, I, I want to take you and, and kind of just get a sense from you four years in uh, now at Arizona. What are the challenges, the biggest challenges of coming back to a place where you're so beloved and, uh, you know, the star and everybody believes in you in, in every way to turn this program around? And that's what's happening right now. But what were the biggest challenges about that uh, personally coming back and and trying to uh, rebuild a program where you once uh, once were a star? And I'm sure (laughs) you've got that jersey in the rafters. Well, I think the biggest challenge initially was, um, you know, we were good when I graduated. And I think the expectation was high in the beginning, like, oh, we need to be there. So I wasn't sure how long it would take for us to get there. So for me, I think there was a little bit of pressure just because we had been bad so long and then everybody (laughs) you want to be like the saving grace but like it takes time to build a program and so I think we've built this program really fast and I don't think this is really normal so I think realistically I didn't think it would build this fast if you had to ask me you think it'll be a top you know 15 team at the beginning of the year I would say um probably not there yet but in a couple years we will so I knew I would do it I had a lot of confidence. I knew it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. I just didn't know when that win would. So players like Sam Thomas, who everybody overlooked, didn't have a lot of scholarship, not a lot of Pac-12 offers, came and took a chance. Her first year, we won six games. And then after that, Kate Reese. Kate Reese, our first McDonald's All-American. Then after that, you know, Aerie. I recruited Aerie at Washington. Aerie, you know, wanted to leave Washington, came here. Then after that, Dominique Titi. So I built it with players that believed in what I was selling. So they believed my vision. I had no proof because we hadn't done it in many years. So they listened to what I said and the vision I had and the passion I had for it. And they decided to come to war with me. And that's what I love. And that's why it's so special because no one knew what this would be. They thought it could be, but they didn't know. So there's always a special place in my heart for all those kids that Believed in something when I wasn't sure how long it was going to take. I just knew we were going to do it. And they believed that vision with me. And now it's happening. So it's just meaningful for me. And it's more meaningful to, I don't care what anybody says, it is more meaningful at your alma mater because 
this is where the foundation started for me. And this is where all my success started. And so it just means a lot. Absolutely. And I was seeing some uh, tweets before the game against Arizona State. I think it was uh, uh, Cindy Brunson was outside the uh, the arena and she was taking pictures of just people in line and they could not wait to get in and see that matchup. Just I know you guys won it and that, you know, you won both uh, this year in the regular season against Arizona State. And I know that means a lot to you. But as far as generating that type of buzz in a city that absolutely loves basketball, what what did that mean? And what has that meant to see people so pumped up about Arizona women's basketball? It, it means a lot for me personally, because one of the goals I had when I got this job was I knew I couldn't change that we weren't good. I knew I couldn't change the history and we've been bad for a long time, like bottom of the pack ball for a decade. I knew those things I can't control because I'm new and, and it was starting all over. But the things that I could control were easy for me because it's a strength. So I knew I could, I can control how much I'm out in the community. I can control how good we are in the community. I can control our kids being passionate about something else besides basketball and like finding a way to serve. Those are things I can control. So I remember I said, even when I first got here, I looked back at one of my papers of what my bullet point goals were. And one of them was all stars in the community. I, that's something I can control. And so I was on the mission from the beginning. I was like, okay, we're going to be out there in the community. They're going to love us. They're going to want to support us. We're going to develop relationships. And that was my mission from day one. Not because I thought that we'd have 10,000 fans, but I was going to, I was sure that I was going to control that this city is going to love what we're doing because they're great kids that want to do great things for this place. And it just kind of, that's how it started. So we were out there, we were in the community developing relationships. So people wanted to support us. And so for me, people ask, oh, you're tweeting. And you're, uh, yeah, you know, it's fun for me. It takes five minutes a day. I'm tweeting out, hey, come to the game. We want 10,000. And they've always responded every time I've called. So for me, I love that. I love that I have that that um, tie to this community. And it's meaningful because I'm going to tell you, not too many venues in the country can draw 10,000 people for a regular season game. Absolutely. Uh, that's It's just incredible. And it's uh, it's happening in the Pac-12 right now in a, in a couple different spots. And, and you're one of them. And it's so, it's so exciting to see. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get into is, you know, I saw you tweeting yesterday about about Richard Richard Jefferson stopping by. And of course, Jet Terry played there. And, you know, I remember visiting a couple of years ago, um, you know, in, in in that practice facility, seeing all those names up on the wall, including yours, of course. But, uh, you know, there are just so many basketball legends there. How do you try to use um, that in recruiting? Does that help things uh, as you're going after some of these McDonald's All-Americans and and and, uh, and showing them some of the history on both sides, women and men, uh, at Arizona? Well, I think just the the successful men's program has just helped. It's really helped put Arizona on the map as far as branding, and so you know a lot about Ludolf and Sean Miller and just the 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 prominence of men's basketball here. I think. Um, for me, I just have a lot of friendships from 13 years of playing professional. So from like some of the best NBA guys, I've known a lot of them for many years. So me and Richard Jefferson went to college together. We're friends. Me and Jason Terry were, went to all four years together. So these are like my personal friends since we were 18. Miles, Simon, all those guys. So I always had a good relationship with them. So when they became these stars, I remember when they weren't. <laughs> so 
So for me, I don't really use that for recruiting because I've played with some of the best players in the world. Like I played with Subaru, Katie Smith, Lauren Jackson. So I think we, we just, those are just like the connections that we have. And I, I know for our players, they're fortunate because at least five, seven WNBA coaches have came by here. And a lot of them have came by because their friendships with me are visiting me. But we just have, when you're a former player, you just have connections. I have connections to pretty much every WNBA team. Not because, just because I'm older now, a lot of them are my teammates, like Sandy Brondello, head coach for Phoenix. She was my teammate in the Seattle Storm. You know, like Brian Nagler was my coach for the Minnesota Lynx 10 years ago. Dan Hughes was my coach of the Cleveland Rockers. He's now the head coach of, of the Seattle Storm. So it's just all these connections through basketball. It's a small community. So we all help each other. And like Kelsey Plum, I coach Kelsey Plum. She came and talked to the players up in Washington. So I try to provide those type of role models for them. You know, Jason Blair, he comes to, uh, Joseph Blair comes to visit. I have him talk to our post players. So I can provide that because of the friendships I have. And that's one of the benefits of being a former player. We can give those things. And I have pleasure doing that for my players. That's outstanding. So if you don't necessarily try to to strong arm and and use that to your advantage as far as recruiting goes, you were talking about selling your vision. So tell us how you sell that vision. What is that vision and how do you get these kids to go to war with you, as you said? Well, I feel like I don't really have to sell it. Like I just have to talk about it. So sell probably wasn't the right word, but I just talk about what I see this program like the potential I see in this program and where I expect to be in so many years and all those things have happened even sooner than I said. So when I talked about recruiting initially when we were bad, I was like my vision to build this program, how I was going to do it, the type of kids I was going to do it with, the way we were going to do it, what we're going to do outside of basketball, the things that I do to prepare my players for the next 40 years of their life. And I think I'm one of the best at that in this program. I knew that that's something I can control. I said, okay, am I going to outcoach Gino and Tara my first year? No, I'm not. But I know we're going to be the best at X, Y, and Z. And we are one of the best at that. Um, As far as mentoring, like etiquette class and preparation for a young woman, I know I'm great at that. So I I think that that's something I really value. And that's something I did even as a pro. And, um, And that's just something we do here. So I think for families and kids, they see that the full package of the player develops here. And that's one thing that I owe to women's basketball. Basketball has given me tremendous opportunities. It has changed me as a woman into who I am today. So I owe that to this game. And that's how I grow the game because the reality is most women aren't going to play pro, but I can have them ready with the resume. I can have them ready, um, you know, for an interview, speaking correctly in front of the cameras. Those are things that I can help them with for their lives, not just for basketball. So we do that here. That's outstanding. That reminds me a lot of what uh, Tamiki Catchings talks about in, you know, preparing um, her uh, players, you know, even pro players uh, at Indiana for, um, you know, for the next level of their life, the next version of their life, whatever that that would be. That's really cool. I yeah, um, Tamika Catchings and I have been friends for many years. Uh, and so I, I, I see the parallel there for sure. Uh, you know, but um, it wasn't always that, maybe you thought you're going to be making your impact in the women's game uh, as a head coach, you know, what was the pivotal moment? Because I I know you'd be successful in whatever you're doing, whether it be broadcasting or I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it would be, (laughs) but, but what was the pivotal moment? What flipped it for you and what made you see this vision of you as a head coach someday? Well, so it's funny. I never had aspirations to be a coach. Like I, I played for a long time. I ended my my playing career at like 33 years old. 
Um, I didn't have aspirations as a coach. I remember back when I was 25, I was like in my probably fifth year playing pro. Joan offered me the job. I was in Israel playing, I remember. Two years in a row, she offered me a job here at Arizona. And I was like, no, thanks. I like playing better. Make more money. It's way more fun. Um, so I declined coaching. And I was at the end of my playing career, and I was thinking about what are the things I love? I played long enough to where I didn't have to like go stress out and find a job right away. I was smart with my money. I, I was okay to take my time. So I moved back to Washington because that was like my home base. I had a nonprofit foundation. I was doing TV on the side. And I liked TV, but I didn't love it. I found myself there when I was doing like Pac-10 games at the time, or they were Pac-12, but it was before the network. I found myself asking about coaching to my friends that were coaching. And I was like, well, I love a couple of things. I love basketball. I love speaking. I love mentoring. I felt like the broadcasting, I wasn't getting that. I would just go to a game, call it, and like leave. I didn't feel like I had the connection. And so I kind of started thinking about coaching then. I didn't want to leave Washington because I had just lived out of a suitcase for 13 years. So I wanted a base. So um, McGuff got the job at Washington. And so McGuff called me. So I went on an interview and I was like, I'm just going to see if I like coaching. I only wanted to coach there. I didn't apply for other jobs. I didn't go for any other jobs. So met with him, really liked him, heard great things about him. I wanted to try it. And if I didn't like it, I was going to walk away and just go into broadcasting because the network was coming out like the next year. And so I um, started it. I didn't even ask my salary and stuff when I first got the job. I didn't even know it till I got the job. Um, I, that wasn't a concern of mine. I wanted to try it and see if I loved it because I'm the type, if I don't love it, I'm not going to do it for any amount of money. So I tried it and I loved it. It was hard, but it was, um, it was fulfilling for me. And so I just stuck with it. And I just said, this is like where I'm supposed to be. This is how I'm supposed to be. Then the Arizona job came open. They kind of recruited me to come. I didn't know if I wanted to take it because I had a seven-month-old baby. And then I decided, well, you're never ready. Go for it. And I, everybody told me, I, Lynn Dunn, a whole bunch of people that I really respect in the business, they told me not to take this job. Arizona was bad paid. It was a bad job. Tough to win here. Tough to recruit. And I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it to the job. I'm going to do my best, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build something there. And I took it, and here we are. That is incredible. Just a, a great story. What about coaching came naturally to you right off the bat and what did you have to work at um the relationships came naturally to me the recruiting was naturally because i'm a people person and i like recruiting it's, it's easy for me um the mentoring was natural and it was a uh, i had done that in the pros for many years it was something that i take pride in so those things were easy relationships were easy the first adjustments for me that were hard was you, it, you, it changes you as a head coach. So as an assistant coach, like I had everybody on my couch every single day. And my office was full of players the whole day, every day. But when you're a head coach, no one comes to your office really, unless you call them in here. Like one or two players will come in, but like everybody, no one really comes to your office. No one like waits in line to get in your car. Those things were adjustments for me. Cause I was kind of like, Hey, you know, like I'm cool. You know, like, that was weird because when you're dictating playing time, people don't like you. <laughs> so it's a little different. Um, so that was an adjustment. I think the hardest things for me was you're never prepared to be a head coach till you're a head coach. So your first year, it's like so much stuff. Like you're rebuilding a program, you're disciplining because it's usually if you take over the job, it's not because of a good situation. So there's a lot of disciplining things. You're trying to establish a culture. You're learning what you do well as a head coach and what your identity is and how you're going to coach your team. So it's just a lot your first year. And um, no one can prepare you for that because you're not prepared unless you do it. So I just think those things got easier. Then once you have a system and you have a routine, but it takes a couple of years to get that. 
I am much better now than I was three years ago. I'm different. But it takes time, and no one could have taught me that or prepared me for that. I, I well, hear and you know what? Go ahead. You know something funny that I'm going to add to that? So there's little things like this, which you don't know, and it's not stuff you would ask. So like my first year, we didn't use the stools. We just like stood up in a 30-second timeout, and there's like 15, 20 people standing around you. You can't tell who's in the game, who's not. <laughs> one starter is like getting water, and it's like it's hard. And the 30-second goes by so fast, you're trying to coach your team and trying to think of who's in the game, what position. Well, I realized it's the one thing for me that made it easier. The stools make it easier because I have the one in one spot, the two, three, four, five, and you know exactly who's in the game at that time. And they're all sitting right in front of you in order. That was one thing that made my life so much easier. I didn't realize that my first year until like I asked someone and I was like, that's a great idea. I thought that it's used the stools to sit there and be away, <laughs> but it made my life easier because the timeout was less chaotic. That's uh, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, just yeah. the the little stuff like that. That is that is incredible. Um, we we talked to Charlie Turner Thorne um, a couple weeks ago, and, and she just mentioned how helpful it is uh, to have, especially when you're uh, have a travel partner situation in a league, to have a travel partner that's good. And for so many years, you know, Coach Thorne was saying, uh, you know, uh, Arizona just hasn't been very good and now you guys are you know and they would have um you know stanford roll through and you know tara could could rest her players for the arizona game and then uh, you know she's uh able to um go at uh, charlie's team with uh with a full attack because uh she rested her players on on friday or wh- whatever the case may be uh, what is it like to have um uh, Charlie's program in your backyard, both to uh, as a rival and at the same time in that kind of way to get some energy off of as well. Well, I first off I want to start by saying I've known Charlie for a long time. She was actually just starting her career at Arizona State when I was a player. So I've always had so much respect for her. You know, I even asked her questions when she kind of took her time off. I was broadcasting for the storm, so we would always talk. Um, she's done a tremendous job at ASU, and it is very true. You want your partner school to be good because of those reasons. And, like, we're both really good defensive teams. We're, we play hard. I think blue-collar type teams. So right now for uh, for my program and for her pro- program, it's not easy either night. So it helps both of us be better. Um, you know, I know when people come to the desert, they better bring their game and they better be tough because it's going to be a battle both nights. And I remember she told me she wanted us to be good when I first got here. Um, and I think it's something that both of us appreciate because both, we're going to make the nights hard. Um, and, you know, I think that it should be hard when it goes to the desert because I can tell you from the, someone on the other side, it's really hard going to Oregon. It's like the weather is bad and, <laughs> and it's hard to play there. So it's like if we're coming from the desert. So when you go to Oregon, Oregon State, you're going to play in front of a minimum of about 12,000 fans. And it's a battle. So I like to think that Arizona's like that. You know, when you go to Arizona, you got to prepare for both teams. You better bring your A game. Do you tell your teams, hey, make sure you soak this in as far as we're going to play in big games like this several more, whether it be in Vegas or whether it be in the NCAA tournament. Soak this in and 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 take in uh, this environment and, and make sure that you accept this so you can play through it on an even bigger stage down the line. No, we don't really talk about that because it's just kind of the expectation they should know that. So we don't really talk about it because now we're used to play. I mean, we average like six, 7,000 fans a game. So I think we're kind of used to that. And then the WNIT gave us like 15,000 people. 
So it's not something I really talk about. It's something that I know they're pumped to do. That is great stuff. That is great stuff. Well, Coach, we wish you the very best of luck the rest of this season. I know uh, this is the uh, rough part of the schedule coming up here this uh, this this road trip, but uh, I I know you guys are going to give them heck, and uh, it's it's going to be really fun to watch those two games this weekend. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time right before this big road trip uh, to talk to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That's Adia Barnes, the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats. I want to talk to her again sometime because she's just so gracious and so fun to talk to. Yet another great interview and so real and such great energy. And it's like, uh, I, I thought one of the most fun things was hearing her talk about the transition between being an assistant coach and a head coach and how... You know, nobody really wants to be close to you or be buddy-buddy or friends when you're the head coach, but she really misses that assistant coach relationship where, you know, they'll hop in her car, everybody wants to come by the office and things like that. So uh, you hear her heart there. It's uh, really cool to see what a a down-to-earth person, uh, the former uh, pro player, the former WNBA player, and now uh, one of the hottest young coaches in the NCAA, Adia Barnes, how uh, down-to-earth and cool she is. So really appreciate her time. Again, make sure to rate and review the podcast. We appreciate it. It helps us out. I think it helps you out because it just keeps us uh, cranking out great content, keeps us motivated, if you will. And if you ever want to hear from somebody specifically just reach out to us on Twitter. You can do it to the at her hoop stats handle or the at John little voice handle. That's me little spelled with D's L I D D L E or uh, send us an email. If you're old fashioned like that podcast at her Appreciate you listening again this week. Susie Solis, as always our wonderfully talented voice. Also our music by Jared deck, Jared And Aaron Barzilai is our executive producer. For everybody involved, this is John Little reminding you that at the Her Hoop Stats podcast, we are unlocking better insight about the women's game. Her Hoop Stats.